Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another United States Study Center webinar. Uh, I'm Simon Jackman. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Sydney and the chief executive officer of the United States Study Center. And welcome to this new way of operating uh, of the United States Study Center delivering on its mission of providing, as you can see behind me, analysis of America and insight for Australia. Like many other organizations around Australia, or indeed around the world, we're adapting to the new operating environment we're in, uh, but finding it enormously stimulating. Uh, the mission of the center has actually never been more relevant. Uh, the way the COVID-19 pandemic is playing out in the United States, uh, only serves to heighten the relevance and the immediacy of the center's mission. And the way the COVID-19 pandemic is touching so many aspects of American life and, and life here in Australia um, opens up tremendous interest in the, in the center's output. And today we're focusing on the policy response, particularly on the economic front, uh, out of both the Australian and the American governments, comparing the two um, and we do so today, having launched on the Senate's website uh, a new report uh, by um, uh, David Uren, who will be our, our guest in just a minute here on, on the webinar. I'm just looking over at our website right now, uh, and, and David's, David's report launched this morning. There it is on screen right now. Uh, twice the size in a fraction of the time government responses to the global financial crisis of 2008, of course, and COVID-19, authored by David Uren. David is a non-resident fellow at the Centre, and of course, many of you will recognise David as one of Australia's uh, dis more distinguished and, 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 and leaders uh, in, in economics uh, and journalism. Uh, and indeed, he was economics editor for the Australian newspaper from 2013 to 2018 and, and led the Australian's coverage of economic issues uh, in Australia uh, for 15 years. Um, David, in addition to being a, a workaday journalist over that period, um, also authored several books um, over the time. And, and this is the part of David's feeder that I love the most. Um, he co-authored uh, a book on the responses to the global financial crisis with Lenore Taylor with the provocative title, Shitstorm, uh, which examined the Rudd government's management um, and response to the global financial crisis. So David is uniquely well equipped to put into some perspective for us the response of the Australian government to the GFC and, and of course consistent with the mission of the US Study Center for us to then open up uh, to have a conversation um, comparing what's happening here in Australia with what's happening in the United States. And it'll be a lot for us to get into there, sort of um, lessons learned from what governments did in the GFC and, and how they might apply to what's happening right now around the world macroeconomically uh, with, with, with the COVID-19 pandemic. So welcome, David. Uh, good morning. And, and I thought before we get started, David, it, it just might be appropriate to, to recognize that here we are um, enjoying a webinar, a conversation from our splendid self-isolation here in, um, in Australia, but um, both, you know, in the United States in particular, but here too in Australia, um, I think it's worth recognizing there are healthcare professionals on the front lines of this crisis right now, who are perhaps having a less leisurely morning uh, than we are uh, concerned not so much with the um, comparative analysis of the of the macroeconomic response and, and the way the different countries are responding to it, but but our thoughts are certainly with them this morning. Yeah, indeed, and, and, and I'd, I'd certainly second that. I think it's been uh, uh, from an economic standpoint just the most extraordinary uh, couple of weeks, both in Australia, in the United States, indeed around the world, as. Uh, uh, economies adjust to uh, a government ordered shutdown 
it's a, in, in that sense, a very different kind of crisis to that which we saw in uh, 2008, nine, when the first signs were trouble in the financial system, um, financial markets froze and there was uh, obviously an immediate concern that nobody could get loans and then there were worries about the shock to, to business confidence and consumer confidence. So it was very much a matter of well, what could we do to keep the economy going? How do we stimulate it? This time, it's um, uh, before anybody's really had a chance even to reflect on, on the impact on confidence. Everything's just been holeless, bolus, closed down from the consumer perspective. Um, consumers are about... Mm, just about 60% of the economy in Australia and about two-thirds of the economy in the US. So you shut down a large swathe of the, the consumer economy and, and it's an immediate and almighty, um, almighty effect. And so the challenge for government this time has really been to um, first try to keep business alive whilst its sales have been... Um, so severely hit and secondly to uh, try and support those workers who are either losing their jobs or, or help them to try and stay in jobs even though um, the uh, sales that would normally support their uh, their income is, is, is no longer there so it's, it's, a, it's a crisis of a very different character. Right we, we refer to 2008 as the GFC the, the F being for financial. And so I guess your take, David, is that at least, so far at least, this is less a financial crisis and, and more a just throwing a blanket over economies, certainly Australia and the US, that are, as you just pointed out, consumer, led largely by consumer spending. Yeah, it's a, con it's a consumer economy crisis rather than, rather than financial crisis at this stage. And I think that that's a, a very... Uh, important qualification. Um, the worry is that the longer this goes, um, the more likely you are to see financial crisis at the back end of it. Um, at the moment, banks are, uh, who are of course the villains of the uh, 2008-09 crisis, are, are kind of been cast as the heroes this time around because they're um, uh, by and large, agreeing to to capitalise interest, to um, um, they said they won't be foreclosing on businesses that that can't pay. They're um, being uh, offering concessions to mortgage holders. So at the moment, um, uh, debts that can't be paid are just adding to um, to principal down the track. The worry is that the longer this goes, the less sustainable that um, path becomes. Um, you know, if you look at where are the big debts in the world, um, in Australia, the obvious vulnerability is, is household debt. If you've got large high levels of unemployment and falling house prices, household debt is a real vulnerability for Australia's banks. In the US, um, the corporate debt markets are a point of, of concern. Um, one of particular worries, a phenomenal development in the US over the last half dozen years has been the development of the uh, shale oil industry, but there's an awful lot of debt on the back of that with oil prices plunging and um, you know, worries about uh, their ability to service those debts. There are concerns, again, um, emerging countries have many debts. So it's really the longer this slowdown goes, the more danger there is that what is at the moment a, a consumer economy crisis becomes something more um, uh, intractable uh, going to the, the heart of the economic system. Sure. Um, I'm wondering if we might just, that might be a good point to dive into a few slides we've prepared out of the report. Um, one of the first findings you present in the report, David, is just to compare, if we could go to the first slide, um, Janine and Mara, if we could pull, thank you so much, guys. Yeah, this is exactly where I wanted us to start, David. Um, part of 
I guess <laughs> this underscores your earlier point, in my view, David, I invite you to obviously comment on this, but monetary policy goes into the two respective crises in very different starting positions, which to some extent, you might even say, well, thank heavens, it's not a financial crisis. <laughs> it might be, at least not yet. Um, uh, but we might come back to that. So why don't you walk us through what we're looking here at figure one, David, and, and, and your big takeaways from it. Yeah, so monetary policy, the central banks have much, much less scope to act. Um, in Australia, going into the uh, global financial crisis, we had a, a roaring resources boom rolling at the time. Um, and the Reserve Bank uh, in early um, 2008 was lifting rates. Um, when the crisis hit, uh, which is really September 2008, Australia's interest rate was um, at 7%. So the Reserve Bank was able to come in very quickly and uh, bring down interest rates. Um, there were some huge, uh, pretty huge cuts, um, you know, whereas the central bank normally cuts a quarter of a, a percentage point at a time. They, in, in one instance, they cut by a full percentage point. Um, and one of the virtues of monetary policy is that it, it has an immediate impact. Um, um, you know, immediately um, you get a, an exchange rate effect. Um, there are cash flow effects. So monetary policy is a very responsive um, form of, of economic intervention. And indeed, that's the reason why the, the mantra for the, the past 20 years or so has been that um, central banks should really be responsible for adjusting to short-term shifts in the economy. Um, in the US, um, uh, when financial markets started to um, go a bit haywire at the end of 2007, um, the US Fed was able to bring its rate down from 5% from to about 0.15%. Well, this time there's much, uh, the central banks can still act, but there's much less scope for them to, um, to really make the big difference that they did at that time. Um, the Reserve Bank's uh, cash rate was sitting at 0.75% before the crisis. Well, they brought it down to 0.25%, and they've pretty much indicated that's as low as they, they intend to go. They've ruled out going negative. Um, in the Fed, they've, they've brought rates down from about 1.5% to zero. Um, now, both the Reserve Bank and the Fed are doing other things to um, try and sort of help at the moment. Um, uh, the Fed's been uh, putting out swap lines that uh, to alleviate the squeeze on, on US dollars in global markets. Um, and both the Reserve Bank and the Fed have been um, doing some, what's called quantitative easing, um, purchase of um, uh, securities to try and inject cash into the economy. Um, but um, essentially their liquidity measures, so it's, it's really the, the, the cutting of rates um, is, is what serves to stimulate the economy. And there just isn't that scope this time. So the the burden really has fallen upon government to um, uh, do what it can. How would you, uh, so Stephen Kirchner, uh, the director of our trade and investment program, uh, talks about quantitative easing and unconventional monetary policy uh, as being infinitely scalable, uh, I think is a form of words, you know, it's got that, if you will, that virtue to it. But how, how do you, assess it's, I mean, you just mentioned it's, it's a very indirect level relative to the interest rate, you know, cutting the prime uh, rate itself. Um, but nonetheless, in the United States, at least, QE played a big part in the response there. Um, how do you assess its efficacy? Look, I, um, I think QE can have an impact on longer term rates, and, and that's important. Um, but I think that the um, major um, virtue of QE is injecting liquidity into the economy. And I think at a time when um, financial markets are freezing, 
that becomes absolutely critical. It was absolutely critical in the US in um, 2008-9. And, and, so, and so if this did go on to become more of a financial crisis, that's when tools like QE perhaps really do come into their own, David? Yes, I mean, I think, it, you know, one should mention that there are some, some issues around financial markets um, uh, losing liquidity at the moment. I think in the US, um, the, you know, what, what one can colloquially call the junk bond market is, is not functioning at the moment. Um, so there are some liquidity concerns already, but I think the expectation is that the longer this goes, the, the more widespread and, and intractable those problems could become. Sure, so having done a little, there's just not a lot of headroom with conventional monetary policy. I wonder then, as, as you just foreshadowed, so much of the policy response, therefore, not you know, for that reason, but also by virtue of the nature of the crisis as well, perhaps, falls under fiscal uh, uh, policy. And, and I wonder, Mara, if we might flip to the next slide then. Thank you. Uh, and, and David, your, your chart, I'll, I'll hand it over to you to walk us through what we're looking at here. Yeah. Okay, so um, in the case of the financial crisis, um, both Australia and the US launched pretty significant stimulus programs. They were um, the biggest thing that uh, in kind of, in terms of discretionary spending that anybody had ever seen really at, at that time um, with governments letting loose with the, you know, the equivalent of more than 5% of GDP to, um, to try and support the economy. Well, this time around, the spending is, is pretty much double. Um, well, it's more than, more than double that in the US and pretty much double that in Australia, over 10% of GDP. Um, and that spending has been um, committed to in, in, in an incredibly short time um, in 2008-9, Lehman's went broke in uh, mid-September, um, but it was really uh, February before uh, major, the biggest stimulus packages were launched either in the US or in Australia. Whereas this time, uh, you know, where do you date the COVID-19 crisis from? You know, I think around 12th March was um, when uh, the World Health Organization declared it was a pandemic. Um, so really in the space of a couple of weeks, um, you've had um, governments um, in Australia, in the US, and, and you know, one has to say uh, in many other countries around the world, um, launch really significant um, uh, packages to try to support their economies and to um, try to compensate in some sense for the government ordered shutdown. Um, now the composition of the packages is, is, is I think this chart shows very different to um, what was seen in the financial crisis and the, the financial crisis um, allowed we had there were cash handouts but there were also um, um, major investments in um, what was called at the time shovel-ready infrastructure. So um, whether that was the, the school building program in Australia or home insulation programs, um, which in the US I note are called weatherization programs. Um, um, there was a, a, a lot of that, that kind of work was, was done. Um, now, this time you're not seeing that, and that's partly because um, uh, the need for assistance is just too urgent and too quick. You don't have time to even get going on things that are, are shovel-ready. Um, in the, the major emphasis has been trying to um, stop businesses from going broke, trying to keep them going. So the, the dark blue line is, is um, what, um, on these charts, is what highlights the, the level of business support. Um, now, sometimes it can be a bit, you know, it's a bit of a line ball as to whether you call it business support or, um, or individual support. Uh, in Australia's case, by far the largest um, financial commitment has been the 130 billion um, uh, job keeper subsidy, essentially a wage subsidy. So 
for the sake of this chart, I've classified that as a, a money going to business because indeed it does go to the employer um, through the tax office, um, but it's ultimately passed on to the employees. Um, it's one of the things about this crisis is it, it is very fast moving, um, sort of having ruled off the lines on, on, on this chart on, I think, Monday, I think overnight, um, the US uh, Congress was debating uh, the need for another $250 billion for uh, uh, small business and the, the Democrats saying they'll only agree to another $250 billion for small business if uh, they get another um, uh, $250 billion for um, health services. Um, something, you know, I think that there's a difference in the way in which policy, emergency policy like this comes together in Australia and the United yeah. States. That's a, you know, a point to segue into at this point, but um, uh, the US, everything winds up being negotiated arduously and you know, into the dark hours of the, the night and early morning um, between Democrats, um, Republicans, White House, um, leaders of Senate, leaders of Congress, and out of the, the argy-bargy, you get money for all sorts of different schemes. So the um, the pale blue on the US this time around reflects payments that have gone to state governments or to um, to different departments that are, are there for, uh, um, you know, essentially trying to, to win the, the arm wrestle and get, get, get emergency funding packages through the Congress. Australia, where everything's much more concentrated, and indeed it's, it's, a, it's a feature of an emergency like this, or indeed the GFC, that the decision-making in Australia becomes, um, you know, we no longer talk about full cabinet meetings. It winds up being a, a, a much reduced emergency committee that winds up um, making most of the decisions. And as we saw yesterday when um, the uh, JobKeeper subsidy went through Parliament, um, uh, people can have their say, but they're not actually going to change the shape of the package um, at all, really, from um, what's presented to them as a, a fait accompli by government. So uh, I think there's an efficiency that is, is built into the Australian system, perhaps at the, uh, at the cost of some of the checks and balances. Yeah, and, and not only have you got separation of powers in the United States, David, but you know, once you overlay on that divided government, the fact that the Democrats control the House of Representatives um, and, and just the deep level of partisan rancor in the United States. Um, um, yes, it's, it's not surprising. Um, you, get, you get a response like, you know, in the pace of it and, and, the, and, the, and the deals that need to get done. Um, I, th I think that's a really great observation. Um, David, any comments on the fact that there is no light blue um, component to the Australian bar chart for COVID-19? It, it, it represented um, over half of the response from government in the GFC, but at least by your accounting, and at least at this moment, you haven't classified any of the emergency budget spending out of Australia in, in, in that way? Yeah, look, um, you know, I should, I should say that there have been a couple of announcements um, of funding for health, which could argue in Australia, which um, could arguably add to a, um, a bit of a blue line. I think that's up to about $5 billion in, in various packages, some for private hospitals, some for um, additional hospital equipment. Um, so there have been... a, a there's been a little bit of spending in that area, but what we haven't seen, and what you know, what you are seeing in the US is um, the COVID nineteen crisis is having uh, a broad impact on on many aspects of the economy, and an obvious one in Australia is the education system, the universities, uh, which have been uh, very seriously hit. Um, 
from the loss of uh, international income that um, they had really been relying upon. Um, so there's been no move at all from the government to um, respond to those needs um, down the track. They will have to be um, in some form or other. But I think, I think the difference is really just that Australia's emergency packages have been very focused. They've been very focused on, on you know, a handful of, of measures um, uh, designed to um, achieve maximum effect. Um, and I think that uh, it just re reflects, the, in a way, the efficiency of the decision-making that's, that's been taking place. I wonder, though, David, if I might sort of take you back to that an, an earlier piece and just a few days ago, another piece you wrote for us at the United States Study Centre. Um, some of the backgrounds of the people currently charged with structuring the Australian government response, um, this is not their first go round thinking through the effects of pandemics on the Australian economy? Yeah, so, you know, I think Australia has... Um, is fortunate to have, um, I think, very good leadership, both of Treasury and of the Reserve Bank. Um, Philip Lowe, both, both Stephen Kennedy and Philip Lowe were very deeply involved in um, dealing with the global financial crisis. Um, uh, Stephen was working in Kevin Rudd's office and was, I think, did the, the initial drafts of the emergency packages um, in uh, 2008 and 2009. Um, Philip Lowe um, was head of the Financial Stability Department and, and just recently he's been um, uh, head of the, the Financial Stability Committee for the, the Bank of International Settlements for the, um, which is the kind of the world's the central bank to the world central banks. Um, so he's, you know, highly esteemed, um, uh, acknowledged expert in, uh, in in responding to to crisis and responding to financial stability issues. Stephen Kennedy, interestingly, um, in the mid two thousands. Um, Ken Henry, that time head of Treasury, was. Um, doing a bit of wargaming as to just how should Australia deal with with crises that might come at us. They did some um, uh, planning for what they'd do should Australia be hit with a financial crisis. And they also, interestingly, did a, um, a piece um, that um, uh, looked at how Australia would handle a pandemic. And this was a piece of work that was... Um, done by Stephen Kennedy among, with a couple of other Treasury economists. Um, so it, it, it has been quite a useful piece of work as they um, respond to the, to the reality. Um, the main things that their research showed was the need to um, support business, to keep business going in the face of very sharp falls in, in consumption, they allowed for the possibility of quarantines um, preventing people from being able to, to buy and for interrupting supply chains. And the other thing they, they really focused on was um, the, uh, the hit to, to consumer and business confidence and the need to, to counteract that. I think one thing that, that was interesting out of the modelling that they did at that time, and this was 2006, was that they said that at the end of, of the virus, um, the pandemic, um, consumption would recover reasonably quickly, um, but they said that unemployment would take mm, three years or more to, oh. to, to get back to where it was. And I think that, that that raises issues for what the Australian economy will look like at the back end of this crisis. Um, you know, I think that uh, while people talk about the economy snapping back or um, uh, emerging from hibernation, I think there will be some long-term consequences and there will be some long-term unemployment um, that... Um, will be things that the government will have to manage and wrestle with. I think, the, you know, one thing that we want to avoid is what happened at the end of the um, 1990 recession, 1991 recession, 
where there were many people who were thrown out of work, particularly men in their, their mid-40s or early 50s, never really went back to the workforce. They um, meandered their way onto disability pension and then the age pension, and we wound up with a, a large tranche of workers who were, were permanently um, out of the workforce, and that's certainly something that we want to avoid this time around. Um, so I'm wondering, before we move on to some questions, I do want to advertise um, another dimension in the, uh, in the report, and that's, um, um, if we could just show that last table from the report, Mara. Uh, thank you. Um, where David, this is fascinating. Uh, if, 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 the, if you find this fascinating, it's fascinating. Um, a, a deep dive, um, a line by line to date that David has compiled of the specific measures in both countries from both the GFC and um, and the, the responses to date with respect to COVID nineteen, and um, and 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 this is just a compelling tale of the tape, if you will. Um, I, I found it absolutely fascinating just to put into perspective. Number one, the you know the magnitude of the American economy, and every, you know everything is just so much bigger because of the scale of the American economy. The numbers um, that are being thrown around: two point three trillion. Um, um, a 2.5 trillion at the bottom of the table there um, to date. Um, but also just to highlight the point, I think David, that you made earlier, just the magnitude of JobKeeper as uh, proportionally in, in the Australian response to date. And you know, invite you to sort of perhaps elaborate, and we've already talked about that, but is there anything here in, in, in sort of this more detailed analysis that you'd, you'd like readers to perhaps um, be reminded of? Yeah, look, I think it's certainly the scale of JobKeeper is, is um, you know, and you compare that to the, the major programs that were launched in uh, 2008, nine, and it's just orders of magnitude larger. Uh, one, of the, one of the extraordinary numbers in the US is the, the 510 billion for large business. Um, and uh, you know, the, it was really, it's a, um, it wasn't entirely a blank check. The US um, uh, Treasury Secretary Stephen Richardson was, was looking for a, a, a blank check, um, but it doesn't have very many constraints on it. Um, it's, it can be handed out to, to businesses pretty much at a, an official determination um, without, without very strict criteria at all. Um, but yeah, the, just simply the, the volumes is, is one fact. And I, I guess the other thing that was striking out of this was how it, um, you know, when, when the Morrison government announced a, a $17.6 billion um, package, which it labelled at that stage as a stimulus package, that seemed like an awful lot of money. Um, <laughs> and it, it really only took another couple of days before it was obvious that that was not really, just wasn't really going to cut it. Um, and similarly the case in the US, I and mean, they started off, I, I thought it was, was remarkable that the, the first efforts of the US was, was an extra you know, about seven billion for the hospitals, but also one and a half billion for international aid, um, which, yeah, you'd off your head, hat to that, it was, you know, it was, it was a good measure. Um, and then there was, um, you know, another sort of major package, you know, 190 billion, um, 190 billion, that's a lot of money. Um, but again, it was only a matter of days before that was seen to be not enough. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's striking that even barely a week up and a half after the, um, uh, the 2.3 trillion package went through uh, Congress. They're now talking. They're now saying, "Well, we, we're going to need more." Um, I think it's interesting in an Australian context that um, uh, certainly, uh, where with yesterday's passage of the the JobKeeper um, uh, legislation that. Uh, Finance Minister Matthias Cormann was saying, "Well, we're we're not going to see the like of that again." You know, and as a finance minister, I'm sure he 
he very much does want to, to rule rule line under all of this, and um, you know, let's 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 get back to um, um, normal budgeting, normal transmission. Um, personally, I'm not sure that um, he'll have that luxury. It may well be that oh, um, further uh, further packages are required before we um, see the end of this. Hey, and and. This is sort of starting to dovetail with some of the questions we we have from uh, registrants, but um, David, I'm just my eyes have fallen on 72 billion in the United States on grants to airlines, um, um, and I'm trying. There's nothing. There's an airline fee and tax exemption, 700 million um, in in Australia, but. Um, Sort of a even accounting for the differences in the two countries, you know. So something with the word airlines in it, there's a hundred x difference between the two countries. Now, I guess support for the airlines shows up in JobKeeper and 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 whatnot. But but the the, the point being, thus far at least, uh, the airline industry not being singled out anywhere near to the extent that they have been in the United States. Yes, um, though, um, you know, it's been interesting to see and Virgin, um, I haven't followed it to the point that I don't know whether, I don't know that formal requests have been put in for um, um, financial help, but, but it's pretty clear that Virgin has been looking for um, more than a billion dollars of, of government assistance. Um, nothing has yet been forthcoming and Qantas has said, well, if Virgin gets something, we want four times as much, thank you. Um, you know, I think that this Australian government, uh, it won't want to um, lose a duopoly in um, the airlines, but at the same time, uh, it may insist on seeing a, a pretty um, savage cut for the uh, shareholders before uh, uh, they ever contemplate putting government money in. So, so let, let's segue then to a specific question from, from one of the uh, registrants. So uh, it's Jamil Karaki from, uh, who works for SBS, um, um, a, a digital producer at SBS. Uh, so are we going to witness the rise of nationalization uh, as a response to uh, COVID-19. And it's related to another question um, from Umair Nawaz uh, uh, asking, um, you know, is this a, a crisis for, you know, neoliberal policy making? Uh, and indeed the second one, uh, they, you know, um, coming just, you know, only 13 years after, after the GFC. Um, look, I think I think it was easy to portray the um, GFC as a, a failure of capitalism, um, and it was striking that uh, in the US you had governments taking shareholdings in uh, car companies, banks. Um, there was a while, I think, when if General Motors wanted to invest money in Australia, it had to get FIRB approval because it was seen as a state-owned enterprise by um, Australian foreign investment regulators. Um, the US was able to, to really pull back from, from that. Everything's back in, in private hands. I don't see any reason. I mean, I think, well, I think it, it may well be that um, government winds up having to uh, intervene to keep a second airline afloat in Australia. Um, I can't imagine that um, that would be anything other than a, a very temporary um, measure before things were handed back to the market. Thus far, this doesn't look like a, a crisis of, of capitalism as such, and indeed capitalism may prove uh, its flexibility and responsiveness. Um, the, the major concern, as I, I was saying earlier, is that the longer it drags on, the more likely it is to um, result in a, a financial crisis that will be much more intractable. Um. Let, let me keep, we've got some great questions here. Let, let, let's get to another one. Um, there's a, um, a question from uh, Michael Baum. Hello, Michael. Um, uh, 
president at the founding of the United States Study Center. Great to have you with us today. Um, and Michael asks, um, despite the New Deal, um, the United States was among the slowest countries in the world to recover uh, from the Great Depression. And Michael asks, does that hold any lessons about the role that capital works and infrastructure spending can play in these crises? Now, we touched on that before, but I, th I think the reference back to the Great Depression is, um, is perhaps you know, worth noting and, and the role that capital works and infrastructure played at that time. Um, following the, the stimulus um, initiatives in both the US, Australia, elsewhere, uh, there was a pretty lively, one might even say at times furious debate amongst economists as to whether um, this brought gains or whether the costs associated outweighed it. And there's an argument which says that um, if government spends money, it winds up with more deficit, that'll have an effect on the exchange rate and um, that can push up the costs of imports and it neutralises any benefit that you might have got from the stimulus. So there's, there's a, there is an economic argument that says that stimulus uh, measures really don't work. Um, yeah, others, you know, I mean, it's, it's an argument that, that runs both ways. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit and stand in, in, in final judgment on it. I, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's an open issue. Um, the New Deal in the, um, the Depression, I mean, I think I've seen reports suggesting that the level of infrastructure spending that happened under the New Deal was just not significant enough to really change what was even then a very large economy. Um, some aspects of the New Deal that are, are still around. Um, you know, I think it was through the New Deal that the US first um, uh, got its Social Security Act, which has um, been a, a very important piece of uh, its uh, social infrastructure ever since. Um, so I don't think you know one should completely uh, uh, discount the, the possibility that there can be benefits that, um, uh, you know, may not be directly economic. And, you know, goodness knows, we still enjoy the Great Ocean Road, which was a, a, make, work, a make work project in Australia. Sure. Um, keep want to keep moving through some of these really fantastic questions we've got here. Um, um, this is sort of dovetailing off some of the infrastructure stuff. Um, so Michael Zimmerman, uh, as a partner at Main Sequence Ventures. And Michael asks, what likelihood of a significant infrastructure plan by China as playing part of its recovery? And what impact might that have on Australia? And again, David, I'd, I'd take you back to sort of at least certainly part of some of the folk wisdom um, around Australia's recovery from the GFC, but, but uh, you're the expert. Um, what role did it play back then and what role might it play this time? Look, China's stimulus measures in um, 2009 were, were undoubtedly very significant for Australia's easy run. Our, our terms of trade were, were pretty strong all the way through. Uh, I've been struck by the fact that um, iron ore prices have um, they've fallen quite a bit in the last week, but they're still uh, they're well above budget forecasts and um, they have held up quite well. Um, However, I think that China, from what I've been reading about China, there's a great deal of um, hesitation about repeating that um, 2009 experience. There's a great deal of concern about excessive levels of indebtedness in China. A lot of the stimulus in, in China in 8-9 was through um, telling the banks to go out and land with your ears pinned back, don't worry about um, the security too much. And I think some of those debts are, are, um, are still weighing upon the economy. So I, I would be surprised if we see a major infrastructure program out of China. Um, but at the same time, you know, they will endeavour to try to keep their construction business moving. Um, and that may provide some support to uh, commodity prices. Sure thing. Um, 
Tony Booth um, asks a fascinating question about taking us right back past the Great Depression, of course, back to the last great global pandemic um, that profoundly shaped uh, economies and, and, and societies. And that's, of course, the, the Spanish flu pandemic. Um, just asking you to put your economic history hat on, I suppose, um, now in, in a much grander sense and just the comparison with the GFC. But, but um, any observations or any reactions to Tony's invitation for you to reach for analogies back to the Spanish flu and, and the economic consequences of that pandemic? Um, look, there has been a bit of work um, being done um, just recently. I noted a, a paper by Robert Barrow, who's a, a very eminent US economist um, at Harvard, um, who uh, put together quite an interesting chart of the, the level of, fat, of fatalities in the, the mortality rate, essentially, in, in the Spanish flu um, and looking at what happened to economic growth as at the time, um, the fatality rate, the mortality across the global population was about 2% at the, um, in between, 2000, between 1918 and 1920. Um, but that was overwhelming. I think 43% of that was in India. So the Indian fatality rate was more than 5%. Um, another 20% or so was in China where the, the fatality rate was 1.5%. Across advanced countries, it was quite a lot lower. Um, Australia was one of the lowest of anywhere, um, partly because uh, we had, you know, it was a longer time before it hit us. We had very strong quarantine measures. Um, and uh, Australia's also you know, quite a spread, was even then quite a spread out um, urban um, structure, so not the very dense living that, that um, you found in many other parts of the world. Um, the Barrow finding was that I think uh, every um, one percentage point of mortality rate wound up um, subtracting about three percentage points from GDP. Um, that's writ large across the world. So India's GDP was down about 15%. Um, you know, I don't know how, um, how analogous those, uh, those numbers are now. Um, a lot of people are talking 10, 15, 20% falls in GDP this time for this year, just because the, the simple shutdown of the consumer economy. Um, just picking a, a, another one or two questions um, from that came in prior, you know, as people registered for our session. Um, there's, a, there's a few questions here sort of landing in a, in a, in a similar theme here. And, and that is, again, getting, getting back to sort of issues about, about, uh, about state capacity to some extent, like how much more capacity do governments have? And so for instance, Judith Betts asked quite pointedly, for how long can governments maintain this level of, of spending? Um, throwing another, you know, so far 10, 11% of GDP uh, just literally overnight. If, the, if more has to come, David, how where's where's the end of the seemingly bottomless money pit at the at the moment um it's yeah look nobody nobody can really um define what the end of the the, the bottomless money pit is um at the time of the financial crisis there were suggestions that if your debts went above 90 percent of gdp um you were your growth was going to suffer as a result. Well, Australia's debts are 20% of GDP. Add in the, the you know, we've, we've seen 10% of um, um, GDP shoveled out the door as a result of um, stimulus packages or emergency spending packages. Um, you could well see another 10% of GDP in, in budget deficit just because of lower tax collections and higher, you know, higher welfare payments generally. So, um, um, you know, it wouldn't surprise to see Australia's debt wind up more, you know, 50, 50 maybe 60% of GDP. Globally, that's not a high number. Globally, the um, average 
is about 70, 75% at the moment. Um, the US, one might say, is, is closer to the line. I think US debts are around 90% of GDP, so throw another 10, they're at 100. Um, but the world loves the US dollars, and um, you know, I think that that does give the US uh, particular capacity to, uh, to keep borrowing. Um, there have been some interesting research over the last year, which has is, is maybe changed people's perceptions about where the bottom of um, the bottom of the money pit lies. Um, there's research showing that uh, since the post, since the end of the war, um, nominal growth in the US and in most major econ advanced economies has been faster or there's been a, a, a higher rate of nominal growth than interest rates. And what that means is that um, essentially you can fund a level of debt without a, a bearing upon taxpayers. So it may be that assessments of how much debt you can maintain and sustain um, change somewhat in the wake of this. But all of this would point to so just a profound challenge to kind of a neoliberal orthodoxy that, well, maybe it wasn't an orthodoxy. I mean, that's the other way to, to, to finesse that. that but, but, and a few questions along these lines. Um, um, you know, there's this national governments asserting their interests in the middle of this. We've got some questions about that, sort of everything from possibility of nationalizations We've also got questions here, David, about what this means internationally as, as, as governments, you know, shore up, turn to their domestic populations and their domestic economies. And then a question from Armin Hicks, who is the COO at Australian Public Affairs um, and, and a regular at, at, at Centre Events, um, um, uh, asks, uh, does the COVID crisis change the centrality of economics in public policy making and instead see a reassertion of the primacy of national security and in turn the acceptance of less than optimal um, economic policy solutions um there's quite a bit in there but yeah, um, <laughs> and, and, and definitive answers you know far too far too soon to provide um, I thought it was interesting, Josh Frydenberg saying, I think yesterday, you know, now's, now's not the time for ideology when, you know, asked whether this contradicted positions he'd previously stood for. Um, and I think it's been striking that the governments have simply come in and said, look, this is what we must do. Um, Scott Morrison is, I think, above all, a, a pragmatist, um, uh, not an ideologue, and, you know, you have to say the same as it would be true of um, President Trump. Um, yes. um, you know, he's, he's, he's not going to um, hang on the need to deliver a budget surplus, the last person perhaps. Um, as to whether it changes the centrality of economic policy making, um, I mean, I think this is first and foremost a health crisis and, and it's been treated that way. And I think it's been interesting to see um, you know, the economic debate um, really gets second billing where, you know, which is not a, not a place it's been accustomed to for the last um, um, 20 or 30 years. Um, but as to, you know, as to whether it brings a rise of national security, well, you know, to some extent, I think national security has been rising anyway. Um, you know, you see that in the foreign investment space. Um, there is talk about does this does this bring the end of globalization? Right. Um, you know, I'm not sure. You know, there was, there was stories in the papers this morning about, um, um, or perhaps it was online this morning of uh, an overnight flight landing in Sydney um, in the the dark of the night from China with um, 90 tons of um, emergency medical equipment um, that you know we're only too happy to have from China. Um, maybe we become even more, um, um, you know, one could take a positive view of it and say it, it, it underlines the, the value of interdependency. Um, you know, there's a politics there and how that, that ultimately plays out, you know, who knows, really. 
Um, and another, since we've raised China, um, really interesting question um, from, from James Lamb. Uh, he asks, uh, given China's seeming head start on a recovery from the health crisis, does that give it a, a leg up on economic recovery and perhaps even, you know, accelerate it in terms of its path towards, you know, becoming the world's largest and perhaps most important economy? Look, it may do, and, uh, you know, I think we're yet to get a sense of just how uh, catastrophic conditions will become in the United States. It's, you know, the, the news with every passing day doesn't, you know, seems to, seems to get worse. And whilst, you know, there are maybe some signs of hope in, in New York, um, there are darker concerns elsewhere in the country. Um, but it's probably too soon to sound the trumpets for China as well. Um, the, you know, I think there's a lot of concern. There may be second waves of, of infection there. And I think ultimately, you know, the strength of the economic strength is, is a matter of fundamentals. Um, and I don't know that this really alters them. For sure. Um, and I guess, David, this is an interesting question from, from Joe Hadassan, who's a um, student at Sydney Grammar. Um, um, first day of Easter break and is attending a, um, a, a, a USSC webinar. Well done, Joe. Um, who asked, um, do we need to, I, I guess this has been implicit in some of your answers, David, but if we're talking about how do you make, I mean, making economic policy right now, given uncertainty over the duration of the public health crisis? So Joe says, what if this goes for not just six months, but we're talking 18 months of a full-blown health crisis, we damp it down, it might come back. I mean, again, I guess it dovetails back into these earlier questions, like how far can governments realistically go? At what point might they have to you know, open the door back up on that debate that we saw both in the United States and Australia on, you know, the economic damage is becoming too great and we're going to have to start by tilt the balance back towards economics more than, than health than we have. Uh, look, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to uh, provide a, you know, a definitive compass point on that, they're, they're going to be difficult political judgments that will have to be made. And you're seeing the debate around it already with business leaders saying, well, how can you, um, you know, how can you, you relieve the, uh, relieve the stress on this? Uh, but, uh, you know, I'd just quickly say that it may be that um, Joe's question about um, transmission and, and, and six to 18 months is talking more about monetary policy where I was talking about, um, where I was talking about the immediate impact of monetary policy. And the answer just very quickly there is that although it takes six to 18 months for monetary policy to have full effect, it starts having an effect from, from the get-go. You've read Joe's question perhaps the right way. Uh, well done, David. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Look, that's, I'm afraid, bringing us up to the top of the hour uh, and, um, and perhaps a very good place um, to put a line under it. Um, um, look, um, that just a fascinating conversation, David. Thank you so much. And, and the questions, the quality of the questions today, thank you, everybody who is continuing um, to support the Senate through attending our events, even though they're done a little bit differently now. But again, the, uh, the quality of the questions that came in ahead of time and the questions that have been popping up um, on, on the screen uh, as we've been going, um, extremely um, serious people with thinking about this in an extremely hard-headed way. Um, uh, thank you so much for your interest. My thanks to David. Um, it's a terrific report on our website, everybody. Um, I, I can't commend it to you enough. Just part of some really fabulous work that's coming out of the center at a pretty ferocious clip at the moment um, as, as the whole center lifts and, and, and seeks to add its shoulder to the wheel, helping Australia uh, understand the crisis and, 
and how it's different in the states and what the lessons learned are and 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 where the way the crisis is reshaping the United States, the implications of that for Australia. That is the mission of the United States Studies Center very much so in 2020. Thank you again, everybody. Thank you, David. And we will see you at a future webinar. Um, we're doing about two a week at the moment. We're back onto um, um, public health matters uh, next week. Um, um, and we've also got a, a fabulous chat coming up uh, this time next week um, with um, the an American journalist, um, and I'm just going to pull up the details so I, I advertise this the right way, uh, Bethany Allen Ibrahimanen, <laughs> I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but Bethany is the editor of uh, Axios, a fabulous news outlet in the United States, but she runs their China desk and um, a fascinating perspective she brings to both COVID-19 and how it's impacting the longer burning conversation um, about US-China rivalry. Uh, and that'll be our topic next Thursday. Next Tuesday, uh, we're back firmly in the land of public health, a conversation with one of Australia's leading indisputed public health experts who is working right in the crosshairs of the pandemic. That's Raina McIntyre from the University of New South Wales, um, uh, quite simply the best uh, that, uh, as a, when it comes to real um, public health expertise about the way uh, the crisis is unfolding um, in Australia and around the world. So that's next week's webinar offerings in the US Studies Center. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thank you so much. Have a great long weekend. Bye-bye.